Well, again, we've been working through this passage of Scripture for quite some time, and one of the things that I have to admit that as I've been preparing, my hope and my prayer is that you are not becoming too wearied over hearing over and over again the nature of these false teachers. One of the things that we have to kind of embrace, if I can put it this way, is that we have to subject ourselves to the very pace of the Scripture, as it were. If the scripture gives kind of an extended teaching on a particular matter, we have to be willing to sit through that extended teaching. And it is, again, a very interesting thing that we must observe, that Peter devotes a whole chapter to the nature of these men. We can go to the book of Jude, and Jude does the same thing. How many times have we seen in Paul's writings where Paul gives this extended uh, discourse concerning the nature of false teachers? And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Matthew 24, 25, and 26, again, all revolving in some way, shape, or form about the nature of false teachers. What is it about these false teachers that require that so much space in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament be given to them? Well, the things that we've been seeing all the way through is that these men are very able by way of their ability to, again, twist the gospel in such a way to make the unsuspecting think that these men have something to offer. And in reality, they do not. And that's the point that Peter's going to be making here today. I think the title of the sermon was The Uselessness of the False Teachers and Their their Destruction. Really what we're going to see is that these men are not only useless, they are disappointing. Not only are these men disappointing, but we also see that they are a danger. Not only are they disappointing and a danger, we will also see that these men themselves are deluded. These men think that they are advancing. And then lastly, what we will see is that these men, again, are doomed. And so the false teachers, what are we going to learn about them today? We're going to learn, as I said, as I already said, number one, they are a disappointment. They cannot deliver on what they promise. They appear to be one thing, but when their lives are examined, they are devoid of the very thing that they offer, the very thing that they promise. Secondly, we're going to see that they're a danger. They're a danger to themselves, but they're a danger to the people of God. Why? Because, as, as Peter says, they allure through the lust of the flesh. They, they carry men and women away with them. People are, are taken up by their teachings. So because of that, they're a danger. Yes, they're not, only a, they're not a mere annoyance to the church. They are a danger to the church. And they are a danger particularly to those, like Peter says, who have just escaped the error of their way. They are a danger to new converts or to those who are not fully established in the faith. We also see that these men are deluded. You know, they promise liberty, and yet at the same time, they are slaves to sin. What a deluded, what delude, what a deluded bunch these men and women are. They promise liberty, and they don't even see the chains of sin that they are bound with. And then lastly, we will see, as we have seen with every study in this in this uh, in this second chapter, we will look at the doom of these men. You might remember that I said before that there is a sense in which you cannot talk about a false teacher on the pages of the New Testament and not see something by way of their doom or destruction. And so again, the danger that these men present. Well, last week, you remember what we did. We, we looked at verses, uh, uh, verses 10 through 16, and we, we kind of categorized the sins of false teachers under three general headings. Number one, we took a look at the fact that their sins can be categorized under, number one, sensuality. Uh, these men have an element of sensuality to their teaching that in a strange way acts as an allurement. Again, we're, we're going we're gonna to kind of uh, spend a little bit of time with that here today. Number two, we saw that these men uh, were, very, uh, were very arrogant, uh, presumptuous, the King James says, presumptuous and self-willed. There is a certain arrogance that these men possess. 
And then the third thing that we saw, and we've been seeing this all the way through the second chapter, is that these men are very much motivated by greed. So those three categories really describe or really capture for us, do you remember what I said? The 14 individual sins that are listed in verses 10 through 16. 14 individual sins categorized under three major categories, sensuality, arrogance, and greed. But we want to move on, as I said, in verses 17 through 22. We're going to look only at verses 17 through 19. And as I was considering verses 17 through 19, again, trying to figure out the best way to to kind of present uh, this section of Scripture, one of the things that began to come to the surface uh, relatively quickly as as you read over these passages is that you'll see the following outline that I've already mentioned to you. Number one, we're going to see that these men are disappointing. Notice what we see here in verse 17 of uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this, these, again referring to the false teachers, these are wells without water, uh, clouds that are carried with a tempest, for who, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, and we'll stop there. And the first thing that I want you to see is that there are three aspects of the disappointment that these false teachers bring. Number one, they are described as wells without waters, uh, without water. The, uh, the ESV refers to them as waterless springs. Now, you have to understand in a very real way that what the picture is is essentially this. They appear to be sources of refreshment. They appear to be sources that will sustain life. And this is all, again, taking the reality of what physical, of what physical water is to physical life and what spiritual water is, the Word of God, to spiritual life. These men, like a well, seem to be that which would give refreshment. But when the weary uh, traveler comes to the well, when the man or woman who is thirsty comes to the well, what ends up happening? They see nothing but an empty well. There's disappointment. And in another sense, we can say it's useless. An empty well, what good is it? And so again, we see the reality of their disappointment is in the fact that they appear to be one thing, but in reality, there is no substance to them. It's the old classic saying, these men, we can say, are all style over substance. They speak the right words. They have these great swelling words, but they have nothing by way of substance to provide for the spiritual well-being of the people of God. There's a sense in which there is something of an echo of an Old Testament passage of Scripture being used here. In in Jeremiah's day, the Lord God himself bemoaned the fact that his people had forsaken him. You might remember this passage of scripture from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, God says this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so again, this this is what these false teachers are. They're broken cisterns. They look as though they should hold water, but they don't. It was almost comical yesterday. I was I was drinking a cup of coffee, and the and the cup of coffee had a had a little hairline crack in it, and all the coffee was dripping out. And I said, "Well, there's a there's a broken cistern, as it were. There's 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 coffee dripping out of the. Uh, it can't hold the coffee that it's supposed to." But again, what we see here by way of these men that they are they are a great disappointment, and they are disappointing. It's interesting uh, that uh, Augustine says that they are disappointing because while they have something of the knowledge of truth, they don't have the substance of truth. And what he was saying was essentially this: they have a knowledge of the things of God, but they do not themselves possess the Spirit of God. 
They have an outward knowledge of the things of God, but no inward possession of the Spirit of God. Jude describes them in Jude verse 19 as men having not the Spirit. You see, we can, we can have, we can come across religious men who may be able to speak up all kinds of relig- religious ideas. But when it's all said and done, there is nothing by way of spiritual substance within them. They are men devoid of the Spirit. And because of this, they are a disappointment. Now this, again, is a, there's a great contrast between these false teachers and the Lord Jesus Christ, is there not? Again, there's, there, there, is a, there is a, if I can put it this way, there is a duty upon me to find Christ even in passages like this. I must, I must preach Christ to you. And I preach Christ to you this morning by way of a contrast. If these men are a disappointment, if they are wells without water, what is the Lord Jesus Christ? You go to that passage of scripture in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, again, he that believeth in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He is, again, the source of all spiritual life. Think back not only in John chapter 7, but in John chapter 4, where he says to the woman at the well, if you drink of this water, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ gives satisfaction to the soul. And so, by way of a contrast, the primary application of this passage of Scripture is to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But there's a secondary application of this passage of Scripture that kind of parallels the false teacher, and that is the true teacher of the Word of God. A true minister of Christ must be able to supply rivers of water. How? From the Word of God, preached, opened up, and expounded, and applied. That a man who stands in the Christian pulpit, he must be able to take the Word of God in such a way as to apply to the hearers in such a way to where they hear Christ to where they sense and feel and understand and embrace the Spirit of God. You see, it's not the man himself who is the source of these things, but the Word of God opened up. And so again, there's the the application by way of contrast with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, with ministers of the gospel, but thirdly, with every one of us. You see, our words to the world in which we live should be words of spiritual refreshment. They should be words that bring the, the weary traveler to the source of living water. Paul speaks about the, that, that great fact that, that our words should be seasoned with salt, giving grace to the hearers. You see, the words that you speak, the words that I speak, whether here in church or whether in, in, our, in our daily lives, you see, there is a sense in which the words that we speak because we have the word of God itself, the spirit of God dwelling within, Christ is Lord over all. Our words then should be refreshing words to those that we come in contact with. Oh, my friends, too, I'm afraid too often what we do is, is we sing the devil's songs along with the world. And I'm not talking about the, the modern day music. You know what the devil's song is? Oh, I can't believe this has happened to me again. And all this and all that. We complain along with the world. That's the devil's song. You see, but to sing the, the, the grace and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good things he has done for us. Our words, again, as a source of spiritual refreshment to those who are in need of it. So again, the first way in which we see these men are disappointing is that they are, they are these wells without water or, or waterless streams as the uh, waterless springs, as the ESV says. The next thing that we see by way of their disappointment is that Peter goes on to describe them as they are carried, uh, they, they are clouds that are carried in a tempest. Uh, and what we, what we see here is that uh, this is another source of disappointment. The idea is that in, in an arid land, whenever there would be a cloud, the hope would be that there would be rain to soon follow. 
And so the idea is as a cloud appears and somebody hopes that rain would come, the wind blows it away. There are two things kind of pictured here. Not only the fact that there is not the dropping of rain that, you're, that there would hope to be, but the other picture here is, is the fact that of, of, of a cloud's instability. It's blown away very quickly. And so what Peter is saying here is essentially this. These men fail to deliver on a promise. Yes, they come speaking religious words. Remember what I said before? The strange thing in a way, these men can even sometimes preach a valid doctrine of the gospel. They can sometimes preach in such a way as to draw followers after themselves. These men are not beyond making use of the scripture in order to gain themselves. And so sometimes you have people who are even saved under the, under the quote-unquote ministry of a false teacher. Hard to believe, isn't it? But sometimes it happens. But when it comes to the real spiritual sustenance that is needed, there is nothing there. They are disappointing. And again, there's, a, there's another contrast here by way of the Word of God itself. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, there is what's known as the Song of Moses. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. And Moses says in the, in, the, in the second verse of that 32nd chapter, he says, My doctrine shall drop as rain, and my speech shall distill as the dew. Oh, you see, this is a picture of the Word of God to the soul of man. Here is the teaching of the word of God. And it's not just blowing over. It doesn't have a hope of, of rain coming down. No, it actually rains. It actually replenishes the soil. It replenishes the soul. Not only by way of rain, but also by way of dew. Yes, there are those times when the rain comes and it may come with, 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 a, with a certain uh, uh, hardness, I might say, or, or a certain vigor. And then there are those other times when the dew just drops very slow, very, very quietly or very easily over the land. In both cases, again, there is not a disappointment. You have the refreshment that is pictured, that is visualized by that cloud. But the third way that we see that these men disappoint is in the very words that they use. Notice how Peter goes on here. Notice when going down now to verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, great swelling words of vanity, all the, the different translations that are, that are found here, these great swelling words of, of vanity are basically empty words. Uh, they are loud boasts of folly, I believe the ESV says. They are proud words with nothing to back them up. They are fine-sounding words. Now, what's interesting here is this, is that these words, and again, you, I think you heard me say before, that when you, it's not at all unusual that false teachers are very adept at oratory. Like I've said before, and again, you know, it, I almost kind of hate to say it, maybe some of the best preaching you've ever heard came out of the mouth of a false teacher. Not by way of its content, but by way of its sound. It sounded so good. Now let me say something here, and this is very important. Because if you notice what Peter goes on to say here, and we're going to come back to this. We're not going to really open this up right now. Peter goes on to say in verse 18, They allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from, from error. I think the ESV says those who were barely escaped from error. And the idea that Peter is saying is this. That what these false teachers are able to do, they are able to preach and speak in such a way that it sounds good to either newly converted persons or persons who are not substantially built up in the faith. 
They're kind of like those people that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4 that are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so because they do not have the doctrinal kind of awareness or stability to evaluate words, all they have to go on is the sound of the words. And the words sound right. And again, we can, we can, we can probably envision that ourselves. We can think of in our first days of conversion when we saw a, a man with an open Bible, we were very ready to accept whatever he said. And sometimes we, when we found out after being in the faith for some time that those men were really men who were, who were seriously uh, astray. I think I remember, I remember, very, you know, obviously very early in my, I don't want to say obviously, but very early in my, in, my, in my Christian walk. And some of you will remember this, turning on this TV and seeing that, that old dignified gentleman, Herbert W. Armstrong. And there he was and all his kind of old, you know, dignity and everything. And there he was just, just preaching one error after another. And again, it sounded good, but it was far from the truth, wasn't it? And that's the point that Peter's making here. That's what these false teachers are able to do. And what this teaches us is this, that there are pivotal times in the life of an individual's conversion. There are pivotal times in your salvation. When you first come to faith, this is a very pivotal time. You must ask and pray and hope that God gives to you, God gives to you some, some seasoned uh, Christian who can take you under his or her wing and, and lead you in the, way, in the paths of righteousness and show you how the, the way that God has called you to is a way of holiness and a way of righteousness. You see, again, why do I say this? Because those who are not stable in the faith, those who don't have uh, the, uh, the discernment of years or the discernment of the, that the Spirit of God gives through an acquaintance with doctrine, the individual can be swayed. And so again, in these very pivotal times of the, in the life of, of individuals who are coming to faith, let's have a keen eye open for them. Let's make sure these ones who are just coming to faith have somebody that they can, uh, that they can depend on. Let's be that one who knows the word of God in, in such a way as to be able to say, listen, stay away from that teaching. Stay away from this and stay away from this. Embrace that teaching that is going to give you the light of the gospel. Embrace that teaching that is going to call you to personal holiness. Embrace that teaching that is going to call you to take a stand against yourself if need be. Ever think of that? That sometimes this is what I must do. I must stand against myself with God. I must stand with God against myself. Because there are going to be times when I'm going to want to do whatever I want to do. And my sin is going to call me to this and call me that. And I have to stand with God in his word and say, no, that's not what you're called to do. And so again, I set before you this, this kind of, this maybe this new idea. Are you willing to stand with God against yourself? Or are you willing to take God's side against yourself? Or are you going to take your side against God and say, oh, Lord, you just don't know this about me and you don't know that. God knows everything about you. And he knows the best way of holiness for you as well. And so again, these men, as I said before, they are disappointments. They are disappointments. And, and, that, and they are disappointing because their words, again, have, have no real substance to it. Since all preaching and teaching is designed to lead us to more and more Christ-likeness, since these men have nothing in that in and of themselves, their words are empty. They are empty shells. You see, these men, you remember what they used the word of God for? They used the word of God to make merchandise of you. That's, the, that's their end game. Greed over and over again comes to the surface. Sensuality and arrogance are all there. But it's greed that seems to come to the surface over and over again. These men, you remember what we said, these men, these men are more concerned with your stuff than they are with your soul. 
And so since that's their main goal, there's really nothing they can do for the building up of your soul. Their words, they may sound good, but they're empty. Since all of preaching is designed to lead you to more and more Christ-likeness, what can these men offer you? Nothing when it's all said and done. And so again, we see, uh, we see again their, their disappointment uh, and uh, that, uh, that, that, the disappointment that they are. These men are disappointing, as I said, in three ways. Again, uh, in the first way, they're wells without water. In the second way, they're myths carried along by the tempest. In the third way, they just speak these loud, uh, boastful words, these, these words of vanity. But there's something else that we see here when we take a look at this 18th verse. If you notice in the 18th verse, what we do is we move from the disappointment of these men to the danger that these men pose to the church of Jesus Christ. Notice what we see here. Look here in verse 18 once again. For when they, uh, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness. Through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness. What are we seeing here? This is where their danger lays. Their danger is in the fact that what they do is they use, again, man's fallen nature as something, as an attractive hook to draw followers after themselves. Now, this is almost hard to fathom. I have to admit, we almost think, how can can a Christian message be so crass and so fleshly, if I can put it that way? We would almost think that people would see that message a mile away and stay away from it. But listen to me. We not only have kind of examples from our own day, we have examples from the scripture itself. You remember how I made mention to you about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You had that very unusual situation. Remember, even the pagans were offended at it, that a man should have his mother-in-law's wife. Paul is saying, you know, and again, Paul is shocked at this. How does this happen? There must have been a form of teaching that would have allowed that to take place in that congregation. This is why Paul says later on in the same epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, do not be deceived. And he goes into that whole litany of sins that he says that if a person does, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why does he have to say, do not be deceived? Because there was a form of teaching that was allowing that type of thing. We can go on in other places as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Why does he have to say this? Because there was a thinking, there was a line of thinking that said that these things were not a big deal. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. You see, there is, the, there is uh, again, for whatever strange reason, in the atmosphere, or if we can say that way, uh, of Christianity, there is, again, this, this form of teaching that seems to be able to creep in. And it's interesting, isn't it, that oftentimes the Apostle Paul had to guard against a wrong application of the doctrine of grace. We saw that in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 this morning, didn't we? Again, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And ESV is certainly not the King James, God forbid. And again, why is that question even being asked? Because since the gospel of grace is the gospel of God's free forgiveness and pardon of sinners... Since it's no, by no work that we have done, there are those who would try to twist that message and say, well, since God saves me because of nothing I've done, then it doesn't matter whatever I do. And Paul says, absolutely not. The gospel is a doctrine of holiness. It is a doctrine where your life is lived more and more in conformity to Christ. 
And so there's a sense in which what we're seeing is this. The doctrine and the gospel of grace has always had to be protected. And there are those who would try to, again, under the guise of the doctrine of grace, introduce all this kind of sinful behavior. And Paul says, no, this is not the case. And that's why these men are a danger. You remember what Balaam did when we looked last week. He was not able to curse Israel, was he? He opened his mouth and a curse could not come out. A blessing came out. But what did he do? He, he conspired against the people of Israel by leading them into sin. And he knew that if they sinned, God would judge. You see, Balaam, that consummate false teacher, knew, knew even more than many of the false teachers of our day. These men think that they can continue on in their sin and, know, and have no repercussions from it. And this is where we're going to see here shortly. We're not going to get there yet. We'll get there in a few minutes. We're going to see that these men are deluded. When it's all said and done, these false teachers are deluded to think that they can live in this way and not experience the repercussions of it. So again, these men are a danger. They allure through the lust of the flesh. They entice by sensual passion. And as I said before, in one sense, this is hard to conceive. But we've seen the passages of Scripture that show show the contrary. And again, these men are a danger to recent converts and those not established in the faith. Ephesians 4.14, be, be no more children tossed to and fro. You see, oftentimes, and let me say this, to be new in the faith and to not be established in the sound teaching of the word of God is not necessarily a matter of chronology. Sadly, you may have been a Christian for years, And I'm not saying this in any way to to berate any of you. You may have been a Christian for years, yet never have advanced in the knowledge of what the Word of God calls you to. And in that way, you are still susceptible to 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 the teachings of these men. And this is why, again, we must evaluate. We must learn to listen critically. You must learn to listen critically on the on these Sunday mornings. Just because I'm here, that doesn't mean you must listen critically, evaluate. It's what you're called to. It's what your responsibility is. And since, again, uh, many are not established and and strengthened and and grounded in the faith, the words, when they sound good, carry in such a way. And again, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter is warning against that. And so the the danger that these men uh, um, create now, we have, to, we have to interact a little bit with this idea how they are able, through the lust of the flesh, to allure followers after them. And as I said before, in one way it's almost hard to conceive, but I want to suggest something to you as that might give a little bit of insight as to why these men are able to do that. Number one, the gospel is a message of grace. There's no two ways about it. You are saved not through your own works, but by the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You are saved essentially by saying that you cannot save yourself, that only Jesus Christ can save you. It is, by repent- it is through that repentant faith that sees both yourself and the provision of God in Christ in one sense at the same time. You're seeing where would you be without the grace of God and you're seeing in the grace of God the person of Jesus Christ and you're embracing this. And so again, it's a, it's, a, it's a free offer of salvation. And it's interesting that one of the key themes that's associated with salvation, it's a beautiful theme, is the theme of liberty. Have you ever noticed how many times in the scripture it speaks about liberty? Liberty, what a great thought. 
You know, there's a sense in which we can say that liberty is really kind of at at the core of what the gospel is all about. I think in the King James, about 25 times this word liberty occurs, sometimes in very strategic places. We all know how important liberty is by way of the desire of human persons, that persons as persons desire uh, liberty. And we know what liberty has meant in the development of what we call, what we know as Western democracies. This idea of liberty then is something very, very important. But what we see and what we find these false teachers doing is essentially this. They either purposely, by design, or inadvertently, they do the following. They replace the true spiritual liberty that the gospel offers with a sensual liberty that allows the sinner to continue on in his or her sin. The liberty of the gospel is a spiritual liberty. The liberty of the false teacher is a sensual liberty. What's the difference between the two? A sensual liberty is essentially a liberty that allows you to do anything you want. A spiritual liberty is that liberty that enables you to do what you ought to do. This is why the Apostle Paul talks about that liberty in Romans chapter 8 as the glorious liberty of the sons of God. What's he talking about? There is a liberty that belongs to the people of God as the children of God within the household of God that none of the slaves within a household would ever be able to experience. A liberty that belongs to the people of God. And so the sense is this, that in spiritual liberty, God is freeing the soul to do what it ought. Have you ever considered liberty from that perspective? That liberty is not that which I want, which I can do, which, which I want to do, and I can do it because I have the liberty to do it. Spiritual liberty is that liberty which frees me to do the will of God. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 6? He says, you were once the servants of sin, now become the servants of righteousness. So many passages of scripture uh, bring this out. Uh, um, in First Peter uh, chapter two, uh, verse uh, verse thirteen. I'm sorry, verse sixteen. First Peter chapter two, verse sixteen. Peter says uh, basically uh, the same thing. He talks about this fact: the fact that our liberty is a liberty whereby we serve the living God. He says this in First Peter chapter two, verse sixteen: as free, not using your liberty as for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Can you, can you envision freedom in that way? Can you envision liberty in that way? That the liberty that God gives you is a liberty that enables you to do what your Heavenly Father commands you to do. This is the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And it's one of these amazing things in the experience of, of, of persons as such that when I aim at God's purposes and when I give myself over to that service of God, I experience a real true soul liberty. You see, the the reality of the matter is this, is that sin brings tyranny. This is where the danger of of these men occur. They promise all this kind, uh, they they allure through all these sinful enticements, and what they are doing is they are putting a soul in bondage again. They themselves are in bondage. We'll get to that here shortly. But what I want you to see is essentially this, that the liberty that God offers in the gospel is a liberty that frees you to do the will of your Father. And in doing the will of your Father, you will find the greatest soul satisfaction. You've heard me say this before. Your happiest days are your holiest days. Your worst days are your sinning days. You know that. And so again, when you, when you use this liberty that God has given to you, this ability and this power to serve your Heavenly Father, there's true liberty. 
And so again, this idea of liberty is so central, isn't it? And so what these false teachers do is they take this idea of liberty. And instead of a spiritual liberty that we've just talked about, they exchange it for a sensual liberty. And in this sensual liberty, what are they doing? They are making men and women twofold more the child of hell. Oh, you see, this is why Jude says at the end of Jude uh, verses um, uh, 20, 22 and 23, just turn a few pages over where, uh, where Jude uh, speaks about our, what our response uh, should be to those that we see ensnared in the, uh, in, in the sins of these false teachers. And listen to what he says in verse 22 uh, of Jude. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, even hating the garment, of, uh, the garment spotted by the flesh. What's he saying? Look, you have to have your eye open for these ones who are being, who are being led astray by these false teachers, these ones who are allowing individuals to continue in, in, in their sin under the guise of liberty. There's no liberty in sin. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ makes it very clear. Whoever commits sin is the servant of sin. This is the very thing that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 6. And what is the means by which God sets individuals free from the servitude servitude of sin? It's by truth. Our Lord Jesus Christ, John 8, 32. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that's what these men do. That's what these false teachers do not have. That's why they keep their followers in the bondage of sin. That's why they're a danger. And so again, when you hear this glorious, this wonderful concept of liberty, oh, make sure you understand it in its highest form. Don't let liberty be dragged down into the gutter. Don't let liberty be reduced to, well, I can do whatever I want because I'm free to do it. Isn't that the way that that our culture embraces liberty and freedom today? We've ruined it. We've ruined it. Look what corruption has taken place in the name of freedom. Look what, again, look what bondage men and women have entered into in the name of liberty. Oh, you see, but there's a liberty that sets the soul free, and it's a liberty of the gospel. It's a liberty that Jesus Christ gives. And so we thank God for this liberty, and we understand then uh, why uh, uh, these men are such a disappointment and why uh, these men are a danger. Now, again, as I said before, it gets back to the, 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 the disappointment of these men because, they, they, because there, there is not in them the embrace and the, the knowledge of these things or if there is a knowledge they're not embracing them wholeheartedly, what these men are unable to do is they are unable to provide for those who follow them a way of escape from their sin. And what this teaches us about the Christian, Christian life is this is that the Christian life ought to be a continual escape from the corruptions of the past. That the Christian life ought to be a continual progress in holiness. Notice again what Peter says here in this, um, in this, uh, in this 18th uh, chapter, in this 18th verse. Uh, Through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Salvation is an escape from those who are in error. Salvation is an escape from the bondage of sin. The life of salvation should be a continual escape. Yes, brothers and sisters, you know, with the old gospel song, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. And so may God again give us this kind of, a, this kind of an approach to the life of the Christian. You know, sometimes uh, what we will experience as the people of God and we shouldn't, be, uh, we shouldn't be distressed by this. But sometimes as the people of God, when we get off track, we know that God will chase in the ones that he, loved, that he loves. Don't we know that? 
Hebrews chapter 2, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And so again, we see we should not be disappointed when we feel God's chastening hand upon us when we go astray. Why? Because the Christian life is to be a life of continual running away from our former corruptions, not embracing a so-called doctrine of Christianity that allows us to live in those corruptions. Away with this teaching. How does this teaching ever get? Remember, like I said, how do these men even find a way in the church? But it's so replete in the New Testament, the warnings of these, of these men, that we have to pay attention. Here are men who turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. How do they do that? If I can say it so boldly, I just told you. They take a sensual concept of liberty and they exchange it for a spiritual concept of liberty. Love liberty. Seek not to be in tyranny, not only to any man, but to anything. And live in the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Oh, but don't have such a corrupted view of liberty that by liberty you fall, you find yourself back in the bondage of sin. And that's what Peter is talking about here. And that's what brings us to the third point about these men is that these men are delusional. They promise liberty, but they themselves are enslaved to sin. Look at verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of a corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, the same is he brought into, uh, in, in, into bondage. And what we are seeing here is once again, if these men, again, why are they delusional? Because here they are making all these great promises of, to liberty, and they do not see for themselves that they themselves are still in bondage to sin. You must understand that sin is is a bondage. What is slavery to sin? Slavery to sin is any sin, whether physical or mental, that dictates our behavior. You ever think of that? That dictates our behavior. You know, we live in a day where addiction is such a big thing. I'm not going to get into addiction one way or another here today. But what I want you to see is this. What is addiction? It is that giving over by way of practice what a person knows he shouldn't be doing. The, the, the thing that he, is, he or she is addicted to is the thing that's driving them. That is the very principle that sin works on. Sin, that's what Paul says in Romans 7. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things I do want to do, I don't do. That's what addiction is. It's sin. Addiction has, more, has, has, has deeper roots in sin than in anything else. And so again... What Peter is saying here is that these men are delusional. They do not even see their own sin, nor do they see, again, the fact that they are leading others into this sin. Let's just go back to Romans chapter 6 again for a little bit. Uh, Romans 6, it's so uh, pertinent to this whole idea of, uh, of liberty and, and, and what God is doing in the life of the believer. Romans chapter 6, we can look at verses uh, 16 through 19. You see what Paul says here. Again, he's describing for us uh, again, what the nature of, uh, of this bondage to sin is. He says, um, we can start in verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not on the law but under grace? Again, here is, the, here is the platform that causes this question. Again, how does this even happen? You see, men are misusing the, the gospel of grace and they are using it as an occasion to sin. And so Paul has to deal with the question, shall we continue in sin with, uh, because we are not on the law? What does he say? God forbid. Look at verse 16. Know you not, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You see, doctrine here is exactly that. It is the teaching of the word of God concerning the person of Christ. Verse 18, now listen to this. And being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. 
And so what do we see here? That your freedom in Christ is a freedom that gives you the liberty to serve the, li- the true and the living God. Take your Bible, turn over a couple pages to Romans chapter 8, verse 21. And listen to what, again what we see here. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Listen, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Oh, the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, what creation is desiring in this passage of Scripture is the creation wants to be free from all, the, from all the effects of the fall of Adam. All the effects of the fall of Adam. And there's a sense in which Paul is personifying creation here. And he's saying this is the creation is longing to be free from all these restrictions into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. That's what you have. The liberty to be what God has called you to be. God has not called you to be a bundle of passion that you give yourself over in service to. God has called you to the highest calling possible. He's called you to be the children of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us live up to that. You see this passage of scripture, these men, the delusion they operate under. And so these men, as I said before, they are deluded. They are the classic blind leaders of the blind. Think of their sensuality, their greed, and their arrogance. They are all, and they are, are, the, are the marks of their, of, of, of their ungodliness. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, we spoke about this passage of Scripture before. Paul says this about the false, teacher, the false teachers. They are men of corrupt minds. They are destitute of the truth. Now listen, supposing that gain is godliness. There's their greed. Supposing that gain is godliness. Listen to the exhortation and the command that Paul gives his hearers. From such withdrawal thyself. You're not to be enticed by these men. If you know that there is a false teacher, you're to withdraw yourself from that person. And this is why we are not to be deceived. Because sinful living will be judged unrepentant sinners will be condemned and we are to do all that we can to save those who are ensnared by the false teachers. Again, Jude 22 uh, and 23, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And so we've seen that these men, again, uh, that they are, uh, these men are are, are disappointing, these men are dangerous, these men are, are deluded, but lastly, these men are doomed. Well, again, this is something that we've seen over and over again in our in our series here, haven't we? You can't talk about false teachers on the pages of the New Testament or the Old Testament as well and not see something about their doom. Where do we see their doom? Go back to verse 17. And look what Peter says here. These are wells without water, clouds that are to be carried uh, with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. These men have made reservations in hell. Hard thing to think about, isn't it? Hard thing to think about, isn't it? But whenever we read of these false teachers on the pages of Scripture, this is where we're brought to over and over again. So how do we make use of this passage of Scripture in a positive way? How do we make use of it so that we see not only false teachers, but we see positive examples in front of us? First of all, let me say this, as I said already, already, Christ Christ fulfills the truth about... I'm sorry. Christ fulfills... And the truth about him is fulfilling. Do these men disappoint? Christ will not disappoint. You understand? And when you go to Christ, you will not go to a waterless well. When you go to Christ, you will not go to one who is a cloud carried about by the wind. You will go to the one who will give you ultimate satisfaction in your life. Oh, my Christian friends, embrace it. Believe it. Live according to it. Secondly, Christ 
as the shepherd guards the soul and leads the soul to the Father. If he has laid down his life for you in death, he will keep you in his resurrected life. In other words, are false teachers a danger to your soul? Christ is not. Christ is the guardian of your soul. Christ will keep your soul. Christ has laid down his life for your soul. So you see, these men are a disappointment. Christ is no disappointment. These men are a danger. Christ is no danger. And then thirdly, what do we see? What's our last point of application? Christ and his gospel is no delusion. You may have many questions in this life, but you will have the answer to that which is most important in this life. And when you come to the end of your days, you will come with a peace and with a calm, knowing that the God who gave himself for you is the God who will receive you to himself. No delusion in this gospel, my friends. These false teachers may be deluded, but the gospel itself is clear light. And the gospel itself, again, gives great hope to all those who embrace it and live by it. My brothers and sisters, I set before you then Christ by way of contrast. We can still see Christ in this passage of Scripture, can't we? Oh, but let us make sure that we don't be, that we don't get, be carried away by, by, by these disappointing men, by these dangerous men, by these deluded men, by these doomed men. Let us look rather to our great God and Savior. You know, this morning we read the passage, Rick read the passage, uh, our first reading there And God presented himself once again as the shepherd of his people. That's your God. And your God comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ and he says, come and follow me.